A dietary pattern is defined as the quantities, proportions, variety, or combination of different foods, drinks, and nutrients in diets, and the frequency with which they are habitually consumed. The point is it's not looking at a single food or a single nutrient in the diet and thinking that that single thing, that single bullet, is the reason for the success. Hello and welcome to the Consistency Project Podcast. My name is Patrick Cummings. As always, I'm here with E.C. Sinkowski. Every week on the show, we aim to simplify the science of nutrition, health, and fitness, cutting through the noise to focus on the principles and practices that will help you perform better, feel better, and live better. Thank you, as always, for tuning into the show this week. Hello. How are you, EC? I'm good. How are you doing? Wondrous. I'm excited to chat with you. We are. Fi- I feel like this is one of those times where it was like, we're finally getting to this big thing that... <laughs> We probably should have done two years ago, but we're going to have a conversation probably. about the Mediterranean diet, uh, what it is, why it's so popular, and of course, EC, what you think about it. And then we'll close up with a hot cake all about uh, a study lo- that looked at the relationship between glucose levels, self-control, and aggression. First thing first, though, the Mediterranean diet, which is probably one of the most well-known, likely most studied diets in the world, one that you... I've never, I've never heard you say anything bad about it. Of course, I'm gonna, I'm excited to learn your full thoughts on it. But it's one of the few that you're like, you're not at least being like, really, guys, <laughs> this is it. This is what we're doing. So let's start for those folks who maybe, and I'm in one of those camps. Like I know, like roughly what the Mediterranean diet is, but that's about it. I've never done too much of a deep dive. So what is it when we're talking about the Mediterranean Mediterranean diet? What are we talking about? So the phrase Mediterranean diet was coined by Ansel Keys in 1960. Now, some may know that name because his research has often incorrectly been blamed in the media for kind of our low-fat craze. Um, But it is one of the most commonly studied dietary patterns in the world. And of course, it's based on cultures surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. The traditional Mediterranean diet really though, though focuses on the food patterns in Crete and Greece, as well as in Southern Italy kind of the traditional areas of olive cultivation. I do think it's worth it to point out that there's a lot of other countries (laughs) and cultures surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. So it is quite localized to these areas when we're talking about the Mediterranean diet. And also, you know, with modern times and modern food, the diets in those areas have changed as well. So it's not necessarily that everybody in the Mediterranean area is also still practicing these diets today. But when you hear about the Mediterranean diet as a thing to do, it's really characterized by this high intake of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds. So a lot of these whole food plant sources, a high intake of olive oil, a moderate intake of dairy, which is usually from cheese and yogurt, a few eggs a week, fish and poultry in a low to moderate amount, and red meat in low amounts. And then the one that I think people like to hear the most is that red wine in moderate amounts consumed with each meal. Now, sweets that contain sort of added sugar or honey were consumed only about a few times a week. It is worth saying, like, while I described all of those, I don't know, different factors of the diet, there really isn't a strict definition on exactly how much of each or even the specifics of, you know, it has to be these types of fruits. Um, One of the papers that I was looking at in review for this actually says that there's 22 different indexes used in the scientific literature to measure adherence to the Mediterranean diet. So, you know, when they're doing a study on the Mediterranean diet and they want to say, okay, to the people, go eat X or how much of this do you eat? They have to give sort of a checklist to say, okay, how many fruits and veggies and stuff like that. But there's 22 different indexes that they've come up with to kind of measure that. 
Um, which actually makes combining the research and drawing some conclusions a little tough. But the through lines here really are, don't get lost in the weeds, largely plant-based diet and then relatively high intake of olive oil, nuts, and this moderate amount of red wine that is so distinguishing maybe from other other diets we find. Um, but so yeah, the first scientific evidence came from Ansel Keys, and it's this infamous study known as the Seven Country Studies. We talked a little bit about it in the Saturated Fat podcast, but essentially there was this association between saturated fat intake and cardiovascular disease. And listeners of this podcast should know that that is in fact a, a good finding, <laughs> that saturated fat does in fact increase the risk of cardiovascular disease, although it's one of many factors and we don't have to absolutely fear saturated fat outright. Um, that Ansel Key's first study um, sh showing this came to an accurate conclusion. Uh, I don't know if we're going to talk about blue zones, but it feels at least reminiscent of some of the, at least the dietary parts of the the blue zone conversation that we've had obviously that that people are having is that is there is it fair to say that there's uh, more similarities and differences there yeah for sure i mean two i think it's two i'd have to go back and look exactly but i think it's two of the blue zones are in these mediterranean cultures one in greece and one in italy so no surprise to see a heavy overlap there of the diet um that's pr recommended by the blue zones and also the mediterranean diet Got it. Cool. Okay. So you mentioned, uh, obviously you looked at some of the research and that there, that I don't know that you would say that it's conflicting, but, it, but it's, it's, uh, it's, um, uh, there's a wide sense of the research. So what, what does it actually say when you dive into it? What does it actually tell us about the Mediterranean diet or the effectiveness of it? Yeah. I mean, there is a good amount of research on the Mediterranean diet. Um, and I would say that there's a consistent association with a decreased risk and um, a health decreased health risk, as well as a decreased risk of death. So good news there. Now, one of the larger studies, it's by Danu from 2017. It's called an umbrella review. Now, we've talked a lot about systematic reviews and meta-analyses where they those are types of studies where they pull together research from lots of different studies and kind of synthesize the results. <laughs> an umbrella review pulls together the research from systematic and meta-analyses. Mm. So it's a review of reviews. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so in this umbrella review, they pulled together conclusions from 13 meta-analyses of observational studies and 16 meta-analyses of randomized control trials. But what's really impressive about all of that is there's now a sample size of 12.8 million people in this umbrella review. And their conclusions were that greater adherence to the Mediterranean diet reduced the risk of overall mortality or just dying, um, cardiovascular diseases, including heart attack, overall cancer incidence, which just means getting cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, and diabetes. Um, and they also noted in this review that not every disease is listed here. And that doesn't mean that the Mediterranean diet wouldn't be helpful in those cases, but it's just areas where we need more research to be more conclusive. So I think that's pretty cool. That's a pretty huge study kind of taking a, a look at all of the research that's been done. And in an age when I think we're all sort of looking for the magic bullet in nutrition, I mean, this might be the closest thing that we've found. <laughs> I get it. It's not really bullet-like when we have a list of 10 different descriptors about the diet. It's more of sort of like a, a cumbersome approach to nutrition. But yeah, I mean, there's a good amount of research with this kind of positive health outcomes associated with it. 
Yeah, I don't know what like the slightly less good silver, <laughs> you know, version of silver bullet is like a bronze bullet. It's like a bronze right. bullet. It's not right. a gold. It's not a silver. I okay, was thinking so- it was like a net. It's a net. It's not a bullet. <laughs> 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 All right. So in advance of this chat, you did send me a couple of things you want to highlight uh, about why the diet is so beneficial. So I think that's that makes sense to jump into that next. So there's two things. Uh, number one, it's a dietary pattern. Uh, and then number two, it's uh, the phytochemical content. So let's look at each, include, or starting with that dietary pattern. What is that and what's the significance of looking at it or recognizing that it's a dietary pattern? Yeah, and I, this is one of the reasons why I really like that the Mediterranean diet gets a lot of press and research. So a dietary pattern is defined as the quantities, proportions, variety, or combination of different foods, drinks, and nutrients in diets and the frequency with which they are habitually consumed. The point is it's not looking at a single food or a single nutrient in the diet and th- and thinking that that single thing, that single bullet is the reason for the success. And, you know, we can do these different studies that would be like, let's take a look at what happens when we add salmon to the diet twice a week or when we add more kiwi fruit to the diet. But the reality is that one food doesn't make or break the diet. And we talk about that all the time. So instead of these studies that look at these individual components, a dietary pattern is recognizing the pattern of all of the combination of foods. And so you've got to eat the entire list of foods that I just went through before. It's eating enough of the veggies, enough of the fruit, enough of the grains, and so on and so forth. Um, and while I said there might be 22 different ways that the scientific studies have tried to measure this thing, all in all, what we're trying to get across here is that there's a lot of different boxes to check. You just don't add, you know, salmon a couple nights a week to the diet. So I think this is really a good embodiment of my principle number five. It's never one thing that a healthy diet comes down to meeting a lot of different endpoints. It's getting all the vitamins and minerals. It's getting fiber. It's getting like macronutrients right based on your goals, as well as ensuring the overall quantity of calories, you know, and so we're not just focusing on getting more calcium. We're focused on getting all of the vitamins and nutrients and all of the other stuff that I just mentioned. Um, So I think that's really great. And it's really good to highlight that, you know, we're focusing on this dietary pattern here that because we're looking at so many different foods in the diet, we're going to also better control the health outcomes from it. And I think with this dietary pattern, you'll often hear um, a term in the literature called like nutrient synergy. And said another way, it's just sort of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And so again, the magic of the diet is the culmination of all of the nutrient value and all of the foods represented, um, not any single one. Is it fair to say that maybe looking at it as a dietary pattern, by doing that, what you're really doing is reducing like the the rules to it? And that's the difference between a quote unquote diet and a dietary pattern is that one is very stringent, you have to do this, and a dietary pattern, to your point, to what we've talked about a lot, is not looking at, uh, not looking at it as though it's one thing or a series of you know, <laughs> silver bullets, to go back to that, but it's actually the, a much wider, much broader thing to look at. Yeah, I can see that interpretation. I would actually say, though, the Mediterranean diet, especially when it's implemented in these research studies, has quite a long list of rules because it's like, well, eat this much meat, but not too much, <laughs> you know, and eat this many eggs, but not right. too many. And, eat, <laughs> and it has like, make sure you get this many beans and make sure you get this many grains and all that stuff. I would actually say that my three pillars method is, is slightly more simple than something like this with less rules. And so I do think once we get to a dietary pattern, you know, you're trying to identify all of the different patterns and foods in it. And therefore you might actually have a laundry list of things to do. (laughs) 
Right. Okay. Uh, the second of those two things that you wanted to talk about was phytochemicals. Clearly something we've mentioned before, but I think it probably makes sense to hit on like just what exactly does that mean before we get into uh, how it relates to the Mediterranean diet. Yeah. So phytochemicals are known as secondary metabolites, which means they're these chemical compounds produced by plants that are not directly involved in the normal growth and development or reproduction of them. So I sort of like the comparison of um, these phytochemicals to fiber for us. Fiber is not essential for us to live, although it's arguably optimal as we discussed in the fiber episode. These phytochemicals are not essential for a plant to grow, but arguably they're quite optimal for the plant to thrive in its interactions with its environment. Because these phytochemicals are part of the plant's defense system against insects and other microorganisms, for example. Now, some people, like those in the carnivore brigade, um, will say that these phytochemicals are toxic, which have course is related to the dose and that we'll come back to. But it is worth kind of pausing and thinking, okay, well, if these phytochemicals are so toxic to us humans, why do we see this continued um, or repeated observation that plant-based diets decrease health risk, right? So it's, we always kind of see that association. So I've always wondered where they kind of come up with that. But anyway, what's really interesting to me about phytochemicals is we actually don't know how many different ones there are. One of the papers that I was looking at this puts the estimate at more than 100,000 phytochemicals, which to me is just sort of mind boggling because you have to let the scope of that number just sort of sink in, right? Like like that's a huge amount of potentially um, health promoting compounds that are in our foods. And not only do we not know exactly how many there are, we don't really know what they're all doing. <laughs> so the estimates that I've seen say that researchers have really identified about 4,000 of these phytochemicals and there's only been about 150 that have been studied in depth. So let's just say that the 100,000 estimate is like way off and way too, ma too many. Let's just say that there's only 10,000 phytochemicals. We still haven't even scratched the surface. <laughs> we still haven't even scratched the surface, yet plant consumption is routinely associated with better health outcomes. And so, you know, I just like people to keep that in mind um, because I think it's easy to start latching on to one or two of these and forget how many there are of them. And so some of the more well-known ones that I am gonna just sort of mention so people sort of know what we what I'm talking about here are like curcumin. That's gotten a lot of press for its anti-inflammatory properties. That's found in the spice turmeric. There's also resveratrol. That's in red grapes, and that's known for its antioxidant properties, but this is why people will try to tell you that red wine is healthy, even though we kind of debunked that um, in the Blue Zone episode, actually. And then there's another phytochemical called lignin. That's in flax. Um, it actually is a phytoestrogen, meaning it looks like estrogen, but it's coming from plants, and it has a weak estrogen effect that may actually protect against the development of breast cancer. I mean, these are just three examples. People have probably heard of other ones like lutein and spinach and stuff like that. But again, I just wanna keep stressing that it's important to remember how many there are. Like a carrot alone has over a hundred phytochemicals. And here on this podcast, we've spent a lot of time talking about fruits and vegetables like carrots and being like, oh, wow, look at their low you know, caloric density and look at, look at all their vitamins and minerals like vitamin A and look at their fiber. Yet we haven't even scratched the surface of then also being like, oh, and by the way, there's a hundred uh, phytochemicals, including beta carotene, which you know, has some health promoting effects. So again, it's just kind of like the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. 
Now, with our limited understanding of phytochemicals, we do have evidence that they're acting in a whole bunch of different ways from anti-carcinogenic properties to antimicrobial to antioxidative, which we're going to talk about in a second, to antithrombotic, so against um, blood clots, to modulating our immune system, to anti-inflammatory. There's been a lot of really good properties associated with them. And, you know, some of the reason why I don't talk about them much on the podcast is, first of all, we still really don't know all of the (laughs) things that they're doing. But second of all, I mean, you know, can you imagine trying to track on 10,000 additional things in your diet to try to optimize? (laughs) (laughs) Like we already talked about, we got to get all these vitamins and minerals and make sure you're getting the right number of calories and make sure you're getting enough protein and don't forget about fiber. I mean, there's already enough to be focusing on that trying to focus on Another 10,000 items would be a little bit much of a stretch. But in this world of optimization, where people are always looking at how to optimize nutrition, I would say that this is the place where I think we can theoretically optimize our nutrition. Now, do I know that this is going to provide much better health outcomes above and beyond keeping calories in check, getting all the vitamins, minerals, all the stuff that we discuss? No. But the evidence that we have that these are health promoting, I think a way for people to practically optimize their diet above and beyond what we discuss all the time is to increase the diversity of the plant matter in their diet simply such they cast this really wide net to get as many different of these phytochemicals in their diet, even though we have no idea what they're all doing. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Okay, so phytochemicals, uh, what do we know about their role in uh, in health and specifically, obviously, with, within the Mediterranean diet? Where do, the, where do we start to look at those two things together? Yeah. Yeah, so again, pretty high-level podcast here. Um, And again, we don't have a ton of conclusive evidence on everything related to them, but I I do want to kind of touch on one of the mechanisms that we believe phytochemicals are responsible for in terms of preventing, um, you know, death and disease. And so there's a biological concept known as hormesis, which means that there's this biphasic response to a stressor. Sounds complicated, but really it just means when someone is exposed to the stressor in low doses, it produces a favorable outcome. But there is a point at which the stressor becomes too great and has sort of a disastrous response. We can immediately think of the word dose here if you want. (laughs) Um, Now, exercise is a really great example of what would have a hormetic effect exercises the stressor and then the body adapts and responds to create a stronger athlete and also to handle greater stress the next time. But of course there is some level of stress or some level of exercise that we could force on somebody that would be disastrous and produce injury, right? Now what's interesting about exercise is the body is not just adapting in the sense of growing our big biceps and and having a a better heart, uh, a stronger heart to pump the blood. The stress of exercise is also building our internal antioxidant defense system. So we actually talked about this way back in this podcast that we titled um, Exercise as an Anti-Inflammatory. And I always think it's kind of worth reviewing this concept, and that is in the process of creating energy. So in the process of creating the molecule ATP, which is what the body uses for energy, there is this production of molecules called reactive oxygen species. It's a natural byproduct, so it's going to happen. And these reactive oxygen species are reactive, meaning they can interact with a variety of molecules from different proteins to different lipids or fats in the body to even our DNA and can cause damage to them. And it's molecules that are antioxidants 
that can actually neutralize or you can think quench these reactive oxygen species. So before these reactive oxygen species can cause damage, we can have antioxidants kind of neutralize their effect. And vitamins C and E, for example, are examples of antioxidants. But the body also makes its own endogenous, we could say, antioxidants, which include molecules called glutathione and perhaps the best name ever for a molecule, superoxide dismutase. <laughs> it sounds like, I don't know, some sort of um, video game character in my opinion. Um, but one of the ways that we increase the production of these natural antioxidants like superoxide dismutase is exercise. Because think about it, exercise requires us to create more energy. So it's going to require us to create more of those damaging reactive oxygen species. And then that will trigger the body to create more of these antioxidants because it's getting the stress of, oh, shoot, we've got more of these damaging molecules around. We've got to defend the body. So it's going to start production of these antioxidants. And so this is where exercise in the short term looks damaging. But in the long term, we all know exercise is healthy. And so it's sort of like this hormetic effect of where exercise in the short term is causing a damage, but then in the long term, we actually are building our antioxidant defense systems. Okay, wow, what in the world does that have to do with phytochemicals? <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. So it's believed that the phytochemicals can actually trigger that same sort of upregulation of our natural defense systems that the phytochemicals in the plants will provide this low constant stress, if you will, or trigger for us to create more glutathione or the superoxide dismutase antioxidants. And that's really a cool feature because this oxidative stress is implicated in our two top killers, cardiovascular disease and cancer. You know, damage to the DNA can lead to a mutation, which can then perpetuate into cancer and something like that. And so having this kind of stressor around from the diet to naturally keep our natural antioxidant defense systems upregulated is believed to be one of the health benefits of these phytochemicals and from eating them every day in the diet. Moving on. Uh, <clears throat> do we feel like there is... Um, it's almost kind of a cliche, but do we feel like there's anything specific about olive oil <laughs> as it relates to the Mediterranean diet? Because you kind of feel like the, those things are like synonymous with each other to a degree. Um, is there anything specific about the olive oil worth mentioning? Yeah, I feel like it's almost, you know, just pour olive oil on it. It's like, I'm doing the Mediterranean diet. <laughs> right. That's what, yeah, exactly. It's like you're not doing it unless it's coated in olive oil. Right. I did French fries with olive oil. It's the Mediterranean <laughs> diet. Um, I think there's a couple interesting things about olive oil. Um, we do see a reduced health risk when people use a relatively high dose of it, which was considered to be more than a half tablespoon a day. There's this interesting study in 2022. They actually followed 60,000 women and 30,000 men that were all health professionals, and they followed them for 28 years, which is obviously quite a long time. Now, at the beginning of the study, none of them had cardiovascular disease or cancer. And then they followed them for 28 years and saw what happens in terms of death and disease from those um, from cardiovascular disease and cancer. And they did find that the people who had the high olive oil consumption reduced their risk of any of them and death by about 20%. So, so that is interesting. Now, of course, this is an association study. It, it doesn't prove that if you take olive oil to a half tablespoon every day, you're going to totally prevent cardiovascular disease or cancer. 
I think one of the things that we have to be careful of, as we always mention in association studies, is confounding factors. And one that comes to mind immediately for me for olive oil is, like most of the foods that you make with olive oil are kind of whole foods. I, I kind of mentioned the the joke about you know French fries and olive oil, but but think about it. Olive oil really isn't in processed foods. It's not used in fried foods. It's used for roasting vegetables and salad dressings. So I do think that there probably is a confounding factor here of people who use olive oil just have a better high quality diet overall. But what could be actually happening as well, in addition to that confounding factor, is one, the olive oil could be pushing out extra saturated fat in the diet. Again, we're not afraid of saturated fat, but if we have too much in the diet, if we cook with all butter and all of that stuff, there's excess saturated fat that does increase our risk for heart disease. And then secondly, olive oil does have a higher concentration of these phytochemicals. And specifically, olive oil has a lot of a class of phytochemicals called polyphenols. But something like an extra virgin olive oil can have a hundred times the polyphenol or phytochemical concentration of a more refined oil. Now, it doesn't mean that you can only get polyphenols from olive oil. You can get them other from other um, plant foods such as fruits and vegetables. But I think it's just another opportunity in the diet where you can be casting this wide net to get these health promoting compounds that we don't know what they're all doing, right? So not only are you kind of potentially lowering the saturated fat content in your diet, you're also picking up another opportunity to get more phytochemicals in the diet. And so I think that's where we might be having some specific effects from olive oil versus some other oil. Got it. Okay, so uh, two part question. I'd love to get into like how to actually follow the Mediterranean diet, but first, or maybe before that, a better question is like, you don't, you're not, and you haven't yet outright said everybody should be doing the Mediterranean diet. In fact, you actually said earlier in this, in this conversation that the three pillars method is in some ways better because it's perhaps simpler. Um, and so why not recommend it fully? And then, but obviously at the same time, it's like you're obviously not saying don't do it, right? Like there's yeah. one of them where like this is like this is a, a nice happy medium for the conversations we often have. <laughs> so like, okay, cool, you want to try it? Here's how to do it. But first, like, why isn't this a full throated endorsement of the Mediterranean diet? Yeah, this is one of the few diet reviews which I'm endorsing, right? <laughs> I do endorse the yeah, Mediterranean exactly. diet. <laughs> <laughs> um, if people honestly, if everyone in the world followed the Mediterranean diet, would be way, way better off. Um, and so I, I do think it's a great one. Of course, I love the focus on lots of fruits and veggies and just whole food um, sources, including whole grains and nuts and all of that stuff. I also think it aligns quite well with my 10 principles of nutrition. So in some ways, I guess you could say that I, I do recommend it, especially if the individual finds it's more sustainable. I think we probably do have a little bit more flexibility than what a, a true Mediterranean diet as I listed at the beginning, outlines. Specifically, I think we have a little bit more flexibility for a higher protein intake, which we've discussed um, recently on both the Blue Zones podcast as well as kind of that low protein podcast. So I think we have a little bit more flexibility there. While I love olive oil, I can imagine a scenario where somebody has quite a healthy diet but doesn't use a ton of olive oil. Heck, we can look at another Blue Zone like the, the ones in Okinawa, Japan, right? Um, so I think there's a little bit more flexibility while the through lines are still going to be there, largely whole unprocessed foods in the right quantities. Some of the specifics, I think we have a little bit more wiggle room, which is one of the reasons why I don't necessarily say everybody needs to do the Mediterranean diet. I think, you know, potentially a weakness of the Mediterranean diet and why I would like something like my three pillars method above the Mediterranean diet is we have to remember that total calories still matter. 
So that even when you have this huge focus on quality foods, as the Mediterranean diet does, total quantity still needs to be kept in line. And it is possible for someone to check the box of like, I did my fruits and veggies today and I did my whole grains and I did my low amount of red meat or whatever it is, and then still eat too many snacks if that's not kind of one of the recommendations or one of the requirements of the Mediterranean diet they're implementing. Now, to be in full disclosure, this is a, a drawback of the 800 gram challenge as well. There's been plenty of people who have done the 800 gram challenge and not lose weight because they check the box of the 800 grams, but then what does the rest of the diet look like? But somebody who goes on to, let's say, my three pillars method, we do ultimately look at total calories because that does come into play for overall health of the diet. And I think what's really interesting about the Mediterranean diet is when practiced, when it was like the only diet that they had, <laughs> because that was just what existed pre kind of industrial, um, they didn't really have to worry about total calories because their food environment wasn't you know, chips and brownies everywhere. <laughs> and so total quantity was kept in line by way of their food environment, where for us, it's very possible to have a high quality diet and still have too much quantity overall. And so I think it's just something important to keep in mind. And I actually think that's some of the reason why some of the studies might not show as strong of effect as what could be there is because maybe they have people checking off, yeah, I ate enough fruits and veggies today. And yeah, I ate enough nuts today but we don't actually look at the total calories in their diet, which still could be too high. Yeah, interesting. And, that, and that's what I was, I was going to ask you about, but I'm glad you brought it up. But just the, the one thing that I think about after, after all of that is, you know, I, what I imagine is the Mediterranean diet was, that's what people, people ate. Cause that's just, that's what the culture was. That's what we, that's what we eat around here. That's what we have available here. And then it's like, well, cool. Let's reverse engineer that. And say like, oh, okay, got it. Now here's the 47 things that you have to eat based on that. But by by extrapolating it out of the culture and the time in which this, again, likely kind of evolved itself naturally, and then say, cool, bullet points, you strip away a lot of the context in which the Mediterranean diet makes a lot of sense. And again, to your point, like I think we'd all be better off if we did that, but it removes the context that we're all currently living in. And so I, I just like, I just reiterate that, that I think at the end, what you said is really important, which is like, we're not living in the same time. We're not living in the same time. We're living in 7-Elevens and, and 24 hour food delivery and, and, and Snickers bar at every checkout line. Totally. And so we probably are going to have to put the constraint on that, which is comes yeah. out in total calories. And also, I mean, to beat a dead horse on kind of the blue zones, blue zones and longevity, it's like, and they also lived in an environment where exercise was necessary. <laughs> and they also lived yep. in an environment where they slept at night and didn't, you know, sleep with their phone next to their eyes, you know, <laughs> right. so they had all these yeah. other things that forced them into good habits. Um, and it's especially true of that food environment. Yeah, totally. Okay, cool. Love that. Um, thank you, EC, for that. Uh, we're going to jump into a new hotcake here in just a moment. But before we do, I want to make sure you guys all know about EC's Three Pillars Coaches Program. If you are a health coach or a fitness coach who wants to bring uh, nutrition into your practice, head to OptimizeMeNutrition.com, tap the affiliation tab at the top uh, to learn more about how you can become a Three Pillars Method coach and help your clients finally ditch the nutrition gimmicks and hacks that so often lead to nothing but frustration. So if you've been listening to this show and following EC and you're like, I wish my clients understood understood this, this is the best way to help them do so. Head to OptimizeMeNutrition.com uh, or tap the link in the show notes. You can learn more about what it looks like to become an affiliated coach. 
already see. Hot cake is when uh, I find things on the internet and I have questions and I send them to you. <laughs> I send them to you. I'm like, EC, please uh, explain this to me or uh, explain it to us as it often is. So what I found, and I don't know, I was laughing before. I have no idea how I found this. Sometimes I just save things. And then as I'm going through, I'm like, I need a hotcake for, you know, next week. I'll just go through this random list of things I've saved on Instagram or wherever I find them. And that's, I don't know where this came from. It's a, it's a, it's a paper uh, titled low glucose relates to greater aggression in married couples. Um, and so that's, I would love your thoughts on this. I'm going to give you a, a quick high, high level view of what this study is about. And then I'm going to let you take it and then go from there. So the art, the uh, article or the study explores the relationship between low glucose levels and aggression in married couples. The study measured glucose levels in 107 married couples over the course of 21 days and assessed aggressive impulses and behaviors. The findings revealed that low, lower glucose levels were associated with higher risks of aggressive impulses, as indicated by the number of pins stuck into a voodoo doll representing the spouse. So we'll leave that right there. Uh, and it found uh, three three kind of main points or three main things. Uh, aggression. Um, the research indicates that people are often most aggressive toward their intimate partners. Intimate partner violence may be influenced by poor self-control, which requires energy provided by glucose. The study found that lower glucose levels were associated with higher levels of aggressive impulses. Participants with lower glucose levels stuck more pins in the voodoo doll representing their spouse, indicating greater anger and aggression. And this will be the last kind of point. The study also revealed that lower glucose levels predicted more aggressive behavior. Participants with lower glucose levels delivered more intense and longer noise blasts to their spouse during a competitive task. I'm going to, I'd love your thoughts on this, but first, honestly, my first thought was like, maybe these people are just married to the wrong person. I actually (laughs) saw that at the end of the study, because like, I guess during the test, they let, they, they're told that their spouse is doing the noise because they give these mm-hmm. really loud noise blasts, which they said yeah. could be like scratching your nails on the chalkboard or fire alarm type noises. Yep. They're told during the study that the the spouse is causing it. But then at the end that they're told that that wasn't actually true. And it was sort of a design scenario. And I guess some people were like, yeah, that seemed really odd for my spouse. <laughs> which so they actually, you know, good, good for them, right? They had some spouses yep. that were not in it just to cause <laughs> angst and anguish. Oh man, what an so, okay, odd so the, study the, you found. Yeah, yeah. The, I know. I don't. I don't know. This, this is what hotcakes is for. Hey. It's like this is weird. I don't know. So I want yeah. to see take. So yes. So relationship. We we won't judge the relationships right. uh, that we don't understand. But the, obviously the point is this glucose level and the self control mm-hmm. and the aggressiveness and where the relation between all those things may be. Yeah, um, I would say that the study doesn't make that very clear. I'm aware of the conclusions they say and that low blood glucose led to more aggression. So when you say low blood glucose to me, I assume that you're talking about somebody who is hypoglycemic and well outside of normal ranges, which is less than like 70 milligrams per deciliter, something like that, and would have obvious symptoms. And this is when people like, that's like, you know, death is is a real possibility for someone who has low blood sugar. And they could have things like they're delirious. And so I'm not I don't really think the people who were in this study were hypoglycemic. I think what they were talking about is within the range of normal, some people had lower values than others, which to me is sort of eh, like we're in the normal range. Like some people are high normal. Some people are low normal. Like what does this have to do with anything? Are we just sort of in the weeds of non-relevance? And I think we might be. Another problem with the study was that they didn't prove their point, meaning 
okay, you run this test and you find that low blood blood, blood glucose results in more anger. Well, then the follow-up idea would be, okay, well, now let's give them sugar and if it's, see if it changes their response. Does it fix the problem, right? And they didn't do that. So there's kind of a couple big red flags for me that I'm like, I don't, I mean, oh, also they didn't really look at the diet during the day. They didn't look at what they consumed before coming in. They didn't look if somebody, you know, skipped their lunch or just ate or anything like that to understand what was their total intake for the day. So I think there's just a lot of um, loose holes here that I would not from this study draw the conclusion that low blood sugar is driving aggression. Mm. So what would, like, it's interesting to me, what, like, what do you imagine the, the point of it was? Like, what, like, I know it's a silly question, but like, what were, what do you think that they were trying to aim at? Or what, what do you think the solution might be to the problem Mm -hmm. they thought that they were identifying might be the better, better question to ask? Yeah, I'm wondering if they sort of thought about the whole hangry scenario. (laughs) You know, when people say that they're hangry, and they're actually angry, because they're hungry. And so I wonder if they wanted to see if is that is that related to somebody's blood sugar? Um, I I don't really know what they were getting after, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Yeah, um, interesting. But I just think it was. I mean, here's the thing: is I know research is really hard to do, and all of that stuff. It's it's really hard to design the perfect study and follow people and measure everything and get everything. So this could have been just a pilot study to then go on to do more with it but i have no real idea of of what they wanted to know besides maybe you know what really drives anger in people and can we can we drop that or can we link that to something in their diet or something like that Mm -hmm. it reminds me of course of the conversations we've had around continuous glucose monitors and the 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 thought that it's this kind of like spiking of up and down that that if we could control for it we can control all sorts of things downstream of that. That to me is at least in some ways would make sense as the the solution to the problem that they that they're trying to identify is okay, if glucose is if blood glucose is going down or is down at the end of the day and we're able to monitor that and then because of that monitoring we could, you know, again balance that gl- blood glucose out throughout the day, maybe we would have less aggressive people. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I do think there's a lot in this balanced blood sugar genre that people think it's sort of the panacea or the the best way to achieve health. When I think, again, it's really overlooking the fact that there's a normal range that that we can exist both higher and lower levels within the normal range. And, you know, our, our pancreas is handling it, you know, our liver's got it in terms of managing gl- blood glucose that we don't really have to meddle in it. And it doesn't have to be this perfect number throughout the day at all times. Really interesting. Um, do you think that there is anything around glucose and uh, aggression or mood or anything that that is relevant, even if maybe this didn't quite hit on it? Or do you feel like all of those things are so multifactorial that like just looking at glucose or just looking at any single thing can't possibly give us the the full picture of why somebody is an aggressive person or why a relationship is a good one or a, or a, a bad one. Yeah, I think it's, I think there's still too much. I mean, do you remember how long the study was? Did they just bring them in for, did us, is that, was that part of what you read? Did they just bring them in I think for it was, one day uh, on, or did they do somewhere. a couple days? It was 21 days was the, the study. And then I think that the second part with the loud noises might've, I don't remember exactly yeah. how long that was. But I think that that was a like a one day thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, some of this stuff and, you know, assuming they, you know, randomize the treatment and stuff like that, that's great. But I also just wonder, how do we know what the makeup of these relationships were coming into this test? Did we validate that they were all sort of on the same playing field, right? Were they what we could say healthy relationships coming in? Were they sort of argumentative relationships coming in? I guess you would say that would shake out based on the treatment that you know, doesn't really matter that the more angry people would still do more of the voodoo doll pricks or whatever. But I just think that there's too many things that come into play and especially what, what angers you that day. It could be the traffic or something like that, you know, and that heightened your response that there's so many other things that this study, I don't think really nailed down to be able to say that, okay, yeah, it's glucose. Love that. Um, last question. I imagine I clicked on some like, hey, it's a CNN art- article that clicked into the what I ended up sending you, which is a more of a more of the kind of the full report. What like what's the like, I would just love to know, and maybe it's this case, or just in general, when you see something like this, not the CNN article, but like, okay, that's interesting. Let me click through to read. Like, what is the first thing you look for? to measure like, is this thing going to be worth my time? Because the only reason you really looked at this likely is because I sent it to you and you knew I was going to ask you about it. But like, where, like, what's the sniff test that you give something like this, absent of when I ask you to do it, for you to be like, okay, let me see if because I because you're reading this stuff all the time. So I'm just really curious, when you click through, like, what are you looking for to say, oh, interesting, I'm going to read this whole thing versus uh, nope, no, thank you. And you close the tab. That's do you have something? Um, probably not a short screen, but, um, I do think that if you kind of scroll to the bottom, they sometimes will identify the limitations of the study. (laughs) Normally that's sort of buried towards the bottom. Um, so sometimes I might start down there because it'll be like, well, researchers say more work needs to be done, or this doesn't prove X or Y or Z. That's not always there. But that's probably something that I kind of look for first, or what are the limitations of the study before really digging in and figuring out what it is. Sometimes, too, the sample size. Um, this was okay. It was like 100-some couples, which I thought was actually an okay sample size. But I think those are kind of a couple of things that I would look to first. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for uh, satisfying my curiosity one more time. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, everybody out there Beauty for dolls. listening. <laughs> yeah, Voodoo Dolls. Uh, thank you for your ratings and your reviews. Thank you for sharing the show with your friends. It does help us continue to go and grow. So thank you in advance. EC and I will be back for another episode of the Consistency Project podcast next week. <laughs>